uh, like I've been promising you guys all episode, we got a great interview right here. This is uh, John Holland, an up-and-coming creator. He's got a Kickstarter coming up, and we're going to get into the details and kind of get into it. Uh, everybody, welcome John Holland to Nerd Thug Radio. How are you doing, John? I am wonderful. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. How are you today? I'm doing really good, man. I'm glad we got you on here. Um, so this is your your Kickstarter is about to debut. Uh, so when everyone hears this, it will air on Thursday, the 12th, tomorrow. So that's when the episode will debut. So your Kickstarter starts next week, right? Yeah, it should start next Wednesday if I don't have any uh, issues or anything. We, we postponed it once already because we just had some technical issues we had to get finished. But I think I'm pretty, pretty confident it's going to be uh, coming out next Wednesday. All right. And it's called Ohm. Yes, sir. Alma the champion. All right. So, so, so let everybody know what what is it about? What are, what are they what are they getting excited for? Uh, the easiest way for me to explain it, and the way I explain it at conventions, is what if Buffy was a seventy two year old grandmother? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a you know even people that net you know I'll, when they come up to my table, I'll ask them if they've ever seen Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and you know some people have and some people haven't, you know. But even the people that haven't seen it know who Buffy is, you know, Buffy's become one of those iconic characters, you know, that, uh, pretty much almost everybody knows who she is, even if they've never watched the show. So, uh, it's a real quick shorthand. It's basically, you know, like in all the fantasy stories, the TV shows, like, you know, with Buffy and stuff where, uh, where the, the wizard or the powers to be, or whoever decide that they need a champion to fight for them. They need somebody to, you know, to uh, kill the monsters, to rescue the princess. They always pick, you know, the young either man or, or woman, which makes sense, you know, they're in their prime of their life. This is kind of flipping that on its head. It's it's uh, deciding what if the powers to be, instead of picking that, you know, young viral person, picks a 72-year-old uh, grandmother. <laughs> yeah, let me ask the first obvious question. Is it on purpose? Is it an accident? Did they want uh, to you're going to learn that as you go along. I, I, that's, that's something that will, you know, will will you'll hear, see in future issues. This is, this is uh, being planned as a, uh, uh, continuing series. So, uh, um, yeah, basically, I don't know how far, you know, you got before you left me, but I was kind of saying there's going to be hints upcoming, like an issue three, her 15 year old granddaughter arrives, uh, to come stay with her. And that's kind of the age, you know, like Buffy started. So, you know, you're going to kind of start thinking maybe it wasn't Alma that was supposed to be the uh, the recipient, huh? and maybe That's... it was supposed to be her granddaughter. So, what can you tell us about what exactly what 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 ex, what existential threat? What what's the threat here that she is championing the world? Uh, pretty much, you know, just uh, a series of different monsters, uh, villains, uh, people like that. Uh, there's no one overall threat what threat it's going to be some different versions of some monsters uh some mythical characters you know her full title is the champion of life so basically kind of like kind of like with uh buffy was you know the champion the slayer you know alma was created to basically face any any fights or anything that you know would um uh endanger humanity Okay. All right. I dig it. I like it. That's that's a that's a cool concept. Um, that that that's a lot of fun. Now, this isn't your first Kickstarter, though, is it? 
No, it is actually my first Kickstarter. It's it's not my first comic book. I've written a million comic books, but uh, I've been kind of afraid. You know, I've been really hesitant to to get into the Kickstarter because it just looks like a lot of work, a lot of things that you know could go wrong really easy. And I've been kind of holding off on it until I, I had time to really to do it because I've heard it's been you spend a lot of time with it once it you know starts to really get it. Uh, to make sure it's a success. So this will be my first Kickstarter. Okay. So where did you, where did the other books come through then? Did you just indie, indie release those? Cause I've seen the other books around. I just, I didn't, I thought, I kind of thought you kickstarted them. No, uh, two ways. I've been actually at this for a long time. Um, I've been published through some publishers like Fanagraphics, Innovation, Malibu, uh, Kitchen Sink. You know, more recently uh, I've did a, a book through It's Alive comics uh, i've got some stuff coming out through antarctica and i'm actually talking to a few other publishers at the moment right now too i also publish under my own imprint die bold comics and that's just been fully funded by me that's been i've got a you know well i had i just actually retired recently but uh i had a fairly decent job i don't have a lot of expenses i'm single so a lot of my extra money was going into paying from you know my comic books yeah i, I totally that's that's how I'm doing it. I, I, I've, I've done the Kickstarter thing a few times myself. Um, yeah, it definitely it's a lot of work, and it can turn into – I've had some successes. I've had some failures, and it, it's tough to really judge which ones are going to work and which ones aren't. That's for certain. So it is, yeah. it is interesting because sometimes you can feel comfortable. You can feel like, oh, man, I've got a really tight hook. I think I'm in a good spot with it. And then when you roll it out there, it just kind of – falls flat and you sort of no. like go, what happened yeah. there? <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. And, and that was one of the things before I wasn't sure which project to kickstart. So, but Alma, you know, as much as I, I hate to be too optimistic about it, uh, I think it's got, it's, you know, it's got that hook that, you know, people can read, understand it really quick. So I, I've got a lot of, you know, I, I'm hoping I have a lot of confidence that this is going to do pretty well. I'm not asking for a lot. Basically, I just want to be able to make enough to, you know, pay for the printing, pay for the, you know, artists and stuff and, and move on. You know, now if it goes beyond that, that's great. You know, if we make extra money, I'm definitely not going to uh, be sorry about that. <laughs> what's the uh, what's the goal? What are you going for? Uh, we're going to go for three thousand. Yeah, I mean, that you know. I feel like that's that's a, a, a good number. I don't want to call you a first timer because you are pretty well established, but you know it is a good number for a first time project. I, yeah. I, I think you would feel good about that. Yeah, I mean it's not. You know, I'm hoping it's not a lot. You know that that if if I make three thousand, I can. You know, like I said, the 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 good thing is this book is is done. It's you know it's it's we've actually printed a hundred copies of it before we even decided to kickstart it. You know that I had sold at conventions. Uh, so the book is ready to go. Once we get a kickstart, you know, once the kickstarter is done, all we're going to have to do is basically, depending on how long the printer takes and how long it takes me to pack everything up, you should have your comic pretty quick. And, uh, we actually, the, the original comic was 24 pages. One of my big worries, you know, on Kickstarter is that, you know, you, you can't ask for $5 for a comical Kickstarter because you've got postage, you got handling, you got a lot of expenses. Yeah, and, it's, and I've always, you know, then so it makes it kind of like 
I was one of my worries was how do you ask for, you know, 15, 10, 15, 20 dollars for a 24 page comic when you can go to the store? I mean, I understand you a lot of the comics on Kickstarter you can't get anywhere else. So we've added some extras to the comic. You know, we I, I did an extra eight page story. Uh, we've got a bunch of pinups. We, we've actually even got a letter page. You know, I've, I've reached out, had some people write letters uh, and we're going to do uh I think it's four pages. We're going to do almost cookbook, you know, where we're going to put recipes that, you know, and actually they're recipes from my mom because Alma is partially based on my mom. So I actually got some recipes from her that she's had over the years and they're going to be in it too. So the book is going to end up being about 44 pages. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I definitely think you're right about the pricing. That's always been something I've really struggled with as far as how do you, what's a comfortable price point? So I've, I've had two different projects that were successful on Kickstarter and I've had two fail. And one of the ones that was successful, yeah, I was asking 10 bucks a copy, but that was including getting it shipped and everything, or maybe it would've been 12 with shipping, but it was the comic book, the 22 pages plus an eight page backup. And so mm-hmm. like felt a little meatier. I felt like I was okay there. And then the yeah. other one, I, you know, I was, I think I was asking if I remember right, eight, eight or $9 after shipping, but it was just a 22 page book, but that one was also successful. And so you feel like it's hard. It's really hard to kind of on there. And, and when you go to get advice from people, I'm sure you've asked your fair share of advice. You sometimes you feel like it's kind of conflicting information. I, I feel like yeah, I, definitely. <laughs> the first guy will tell you, Oh, you definitely don't want to do this. And the next guy will go like, well, where is this? And you're like, wait, what? Yeah. What is what is some of your top good advice you've gotten? And what is some advice that you've heard? You don't have to name anybody, but any advice you heard that you were like, I don't know if that's accurate. I don't know. I've, I've heard, so, you know, I've went through so much advice and, 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 you know, I've bought a couple books on Kickstarter and, you know, my mind is kind of all this big swamp of everything I've heard. I, I really couldn't even tell you, tell you now what was the good and what was the bad. Um, you know, a lot of people, the price, you know, uh, that's always that. That was my biggest thing to to contend with too, just to making sure that price isn't too far out. And it's not, you know, I, one of my biggest worries is I do this Kickstarter, it's a success, and then I end up losing money because I didn't, you know, figure it out correctly. Yeah, uh, yeah, and shipping has become such a nightmare too. Yeah, and that's what that's what I've heard. So uh, probably my best advice is to make sure your all your prices and everything line up that when you know you're not going to end up being you know out of money that you know you've you've included shipping you've included postage you've included the mailers you've got all of that included you know in the price of what you're asking so when it does if it does succeed you're not all of a sudden you know two i was just actually talking to somebody i was at a convention and they were on a panel and they just did a kickstarter and they did it over covid and because you know before COVID and after COVID, the price of printing went up a lot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and they had taken in consideration, you know, pre-COVID, you know, when the time they started it, but by the time it finished, he said he was going to end up having to put money into it himself. Now that, you know, he had just kick, Kickstarter was a success, but they basically didn't make any money on it because of, you know, some of the things that were kind of, I mean, it was really kind of out of their hand because who knew, you know, printing was going to jump up the price that it did. And that's and that's sort of like the 
uh, the scarier thing, right? Like you're in a good spot because a lot of it's already finished. It sounds like, and so your turnaround to when you're ready to hand it to your printer is going to be really short. Yes. But, but yeah, you know, the further you get away from that quote, the less good it is, you know? And so that definitely is something I had a project that funded probably 14 months ago. And it took the first artist and I, we got about halfway through everything before he kind of fell off and, and needed to step away. And so we kind of had to, start back from ground zero without anywhere near as much money. Plus you try and protect money for shipping. You can find yourself in a, in a hole real quick on something. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's my nightmare that, you know, that all of a sudden, you know, because, you know, definitely I want to make sure I, I, I fulfill all the, the people that have uh, pledged for it because that's one thing, you know, once you can get in Kickstarter and, and get a reputation really quick that, you know, I've, I've got, I've pledged to Kickstarters, that I'm waiting two, three, four years for still. Oh yeah. There's, there's one, I finally got, uh, well, I don't know. Uh, well, he shipped it. So I can, I can say this now. Uh, I had been waiting, you know, a year for David Popo's, uh, Savage Oz or whatever it was called. He did one yeah. where the wizard of Oz, the soldier stuff. And so like, I was excited. I was interested. So I, I backed it. I mean, it's been over a year and it, it finally just kind of, I, couple days ago uh yeah. and then there's some ones you know i'm still waiting on uh fire emblem red girl i think fire emblem girl whatever her name is yeah she's on the radiant black stuff and that one still hasn't come out but that's i mean it happens you know they're oh, doing yeah. yeah they're doing i think 50 pages or something like that and the artist got sick or something and you know you got to make a choice at that point. Do you, do you? Oh yeah, I think a lot of that is at least if they keep keep you updated, it doesn't feel as bad. You know, yeah. if they go radio silence and you know they basically you don't hear anything. It feels more like they just took your money and walked away. Yeah, and that's you know that's actually probably one of my weaker things is staying up to date. I know with my project, like I said, it's, we're we're finally going to print in the next couple of weeks, and it, and it was just a year of just like getting halfway there and then starting over was just such a, just a poop in the can, right? Like you just like, Oh my goodness. Oh, uh, yeah. And so I know there's definitely gotta be some people frustrated and waiting. And like, I'm just, as it, it, it sort of shifts your attitude a little bit almost too, right? Like you, you become eager just to get it out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> like, let's just get this thing gone. Uh, yeah. Okay. So can, you're looking at a pretty quick turnaround. So does that mean you're looking at, an American Prince company, or are you just going to try from overseas? What are, what are your hopes there? Yeah, I've been using a company out of uh, San Diego that has been really good. They're, you know, they're quick, they're easy. Uh, I just send in the PDF files. They format it. I don't have all this because, you know, some of these printers I've tried to use and, you know, I send in the work and they're like, oh, you have to follow this, you have to do this, and I get lost. Um, no, I'm with you. I, I, I actually had gotten a quote one time from a printer that I, I fell in love with. They were about a dollar cheaper than everyone else. And I sent yeah. them the PDFs and they said, oh, we're going to need to do some work on this. We charge $200 for PDF formatting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, well, there goes all the savings. I said, okay, never mind. I'll go to the other guy. <laughs> yeah. And, and up until the pandemic, this company was like, I'd send in my stuff and they'd get the book printed and sent to me within two weeks. Oof. Uh, you know, I have yet to see another printer that has been, you know, anywhere quick that quick. Yeah, no, I feel you on that. Um, 
trying to think. On my last one that printed, we did we used a, a smaller company that I found on Facebook, Heroes and Villains, I believe is what it's called. Okay. And like my understanding, and I don't know them personally, my understanding though is the whole setup is in like a guy's garage. Mm-hmm. And he basically is just he's he's just trying to grow a printing company. And he got them to me in under a month. That was pretty impressive. Well, that's pretty good too. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm using the company is uh, M I X A M. They're out of San, I think San Diego. Yeah, and, uh, they are good. I've used them before. I, I enjoyed the process working with them. Is this your first time working with them? Oh no, no. They printed pretty much everything I've done in the last year or so. So they they printed up at least probably a dozen of my comics. So, uh, you know, they went up. They went up like. They went up like everybody else during the pandemic and they're not quite as quick because sometimes they run out of the paper stock. So I have did one or two comics where, you know, they were supposed to get to me like, and they had to email me and say, Oh, it's going to be another week before we can get it to you or whatever. But you know, right now everybody's suffering those same problems. So. Yes. Yes. They truly are. Uh, the paper thing, the paper thing is just crazy. I don't, I don't know. You know, I, uh, I'm always a, I'm always a nut for like weird things. I'll give you an example. Um, a few years back, there were only two facilities in the world that made IV bags for hospitals. One you know, was in, I, yeah, I heard that that something about that too. Yeah, one was in Puerto Rico and one was in India. So then, yeah. when the hurricane occurred and Puerto Rico basically got got wiped out, all of a sudden there was only one place in the entire world that was making IV bags and it was coming from India and all of a sudden there was this chance that we were going to run out of IV IV bags this was about yeah. six years and that uh, interesting stuff like that always blows my mind so when, so when the COVID pandemic hits and everything shuts down and everything starts back up the one industry most affected one of the ones most affected was car sales and then the other one was paper yeah. Yeah. My brother works at a dealership. He works like in the parts department. And for the longest time after the pandemic or during the pandemic, even after the pandemic, they could not get cars in. And he yeah. works for a Chevy dealership. So it's, it's not like it's a small you know, dealership. It's a big dealership. So, yeah, the, the, the thing became they were waiting on like chips or something. And yeah, then that's after- what he said. It was it was because everything in your car nowadays is computerized. And he yes. said they were they were waiting for the you know the chips because they all come from China. You know we, we kind of have done this all to ourselves. I feel like when we when we break it all down, it's sort yeah. of like uh, during the pandemic with the meat, when all of a sudden we we almost ran out of lunch meat or whatever it was that we were running out of, because one company packs all the different companies meat meat. I was like yeah. well, that that feels dumb. Like how did we fall that far apart? Yeah, well, you know, once we started letting, you know, we kind of got away from the fact of monopolies and letting, you know, these companies, basically one company run everything in their one, you know, their category, it gets to basically, they control it. If they can't make it, then we're screwed. Yeah, uh, you know, it's funny you say that. So we were, we've were we been talking a, a, a lot more here lately, obviously, the about Diamond Comics and about how they kind of yes. are – they are the comic book industry. There's no, there's no real way around that. And when they basically shut down shop for about eight weeks, it, it really kind of changed the comic book industry. Yeah. Yeah, it, it did. Well, and even now it's like, it's kind of, 
seeing what happens because, you know, Marvel and DC really don't deal with Diamond anymore. So, Right, and I, I don't know – and again, I don't. Uh, I'm not a. I don't specialize in, in diamond comics. I don't know this for any insider readism, but I don't know how they function as a business for too long without Marvel and DC. Yeah, I didn't either. But from a little reading I've done, is from what I understand, they do a lot of uh, gaming and uh, that side of the business too, which has been really what's keeping them afloat. I think. They do, but I, I also know a lot of stores have started to, uh, without naming anybody or making trouble for anybody, you know, we've got a good relationship with a lot of stores here in Houston uh, as a show. And I know a couple of the stores, they basically internally, they've kind of directed their ordering people to basically just say as little from Diamond as possible. Oh, yeah, I, I could believe it. You know, if there's another, if there's another vendor at all who sells the same product, we get it from the other guy. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, there's there's definitely a few stores, at least here in Houston that I know of, that operate under that anyone put diamond philosophy yeah. as much as possible. And it's, and it's only because of their own doing, but it is kind of a weird situation where you kind of, where you, you kind of nailed it there, where you talk about this weird, like pseudo monopoly, you know, a functional monopoly for sure, but, but yeah. not one that, it, not one that anybody wanted, you know, like, how did we get to that? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, you know, a lot of shops were complaining about Diamond, I know, but they also liked Diamond because it made it convenient. You know, you had one stop, one shopping, and a lot of shops don't want to have to deal with, you know, having to go through more than one catalog. So, For sure, yeah. but, I, you know, you got to think your, your, your worry then becomes like you become basically like a Diamond outlet store. Yeah, definitely. Well, and you ha- and you're you're stuck with Diamond, you know. I mean, you have no other. You can't buy a comic anywhere else. And if you want to, you know, be in business, you've got to, you know. From one of the things that you know I've heard from shops is, you know, Diamond's shipping policy is terrible. Yeah, that is something I've heard a lot. Um, we've had him on the show before, a gentleman Dennis Barger out of Chicago. He, he has his own store. He's big. Got a big, big store. Maybe it's Berger. I might be saying his name wrong, but uh, my understanding is he they asked him to leave a Diamond Expo one time because he complained so much about the shipping wow. boxes. <laughs> um, and so like he doesn't even do business with Diamond anymore because and he's a a massive shop. I think he's in a mall now. Uh, but like he's one of the bigger stores that I know of. But yeah, he he always had an issue with the shipping, and he finally. I guess at like the Diamond Expo, probably six, five or six years ago, he or four or five years ago, he he had an opportunity to kind of show some people what he's talking about, like brought boxes or something. And yeah. Said, hey, uh, this isn't what this is for, so you need to leave. <laughs> uh, wow. <laughs> what um, so you've released several titles. You you said Malibu. That's an interesting footnote in comic book history. What, what did you do for Malibu? Uh, I didn't actually it wasn't strictly Malibu itself as one of their other because Malibu had like about a dozen, half a dozen imprints. I did something for their uh, adventure titles, adventure comics. Uh, I, I did the adaptation of the Death World novels by Harry Harrison. Uh, he had three novels that he had put out that, you know, at that time they were, you know, they did a lot of adaptations. They did Plan the Apes and. Uh, they actually did his other, his better known one was the Stainless Steel Rat. Uh, 
But yeah, he also yeah. wrote three volumes of uh, Death World, and I adapted all three of those at the time. That's awesome. That's cool. Yeah, that that was pretty cool working for him. Uh, you know, at that time, that's back, you know, uh, back in the what they call, you know, the black and white boom when there's a lot of stuff being put out. Uh, you know, I did some uh, for Kitchen Sink. I, I, I did some stories in their anthology, uh, Death Rattle. Okay. Uh, I, I worked with, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Sam Keith. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Sam and I kind of started at the same time and we were doing some things, you know, uh, trying to break in and then he started getting work from, uh, first it was Kamiko and then I think DC picked him up and, uh, you know, before long he was, you know, he was getting a lot of work and, uh, you know, he and moved on to, you know, of course, you know, getting to, you know, do his own stuff. It was it was it Lobo that was the big Sam Keith title? Am I remembering right? Was that uh, uh his his title was the Max that he did yeah. for the Image? That's right. But he uh, did DC, right? Yeah, I think he's he's done Lobo and Batman, and I know he did a lot of Wolverine. Like when you know Marvel had that uh, anthology title, I think it was called Marvel Comics Presents. Yes, that's right. Yeah, he did a lot of Wolverine in there. He did a lot of covers, so uh, I think that helped. You know. Uh, you know, I mean, and, and, you know, Sam became a really big name there for a while. He was, he was, you know, riding pretty high. So, uh, and he's, he's got his own unique style and it's, you know, a little different very, than a lot of. He's very instantly recognizable. Yes, that's, that's for sure. <laughs> you definitely, when you see it, you go, okay, that's Sam Keith's work. Yeah. You know, the Max, interesting. Okay. So I was a huge nerd um, and I was, and I was a voracious reader to the point where by the time I was like 10 or 12, I was reading everything to the point that my family kind of just gave up on like policing, like yeah. <laughs> inappropriate or appropriate. They were like, Corey just reads whatever. It's fine. Don't worry about it. It's fine. The Max still holds the pleasure of being the only comic book that my mom ever actually did ban from the house. She was like, Oh wow. Oh. She was like, that that one's kind of weird. Don't 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 read that one anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah, for for about two seconds, I was actually gonna be the writer on the Max. Oh, well, you got to tell that story. What happened there? Uh, yeah, basically, you know, when you know when Image started, you know, all those artists, you know, were getting their friends to, you know, write their comics for them. Well, yeah. Sam, Sam also worked with. I don't know if you know uh, Bill Loeb's, who did a comic called Journey, and uh, he 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 did a lot of other stuff. That's the comic I always remember him by. It was a black and white comic called uh, Journey. It was set like in the mid eighteen hundreds in uh, like Michigan, uh, but. He also did. He wrote Flash, uh, and he wrote some other superhero titles also. Yes, the name is familiar now. That you're saying it. yes. Okay. Yeah. So he was the first one saying, and and him and Sam had already did a few. Th I think they had did uh, two graphic novels called uh, based on Epicurus the Sage, and that was his first one he went to. And and Bill was kind of like, I don't know what the reasons. Bill just had said, you know, he wasn't really interested in doing it. So Sam had come to me and asked if I wanted to write it. And I was like, of course, you know, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. and, you know, we kind of talked a little bit and stuff, but then Bill came back and, you know, said that he was, you know, he, he wanted to do it. And, you know, and Sam went, well, I don't blame him because, you know, Sam went to more experienced and the person that, you know, he had been working with more and, and uh, Bill did the first couple issues of uh, the max. And then Sam actually took over the writing and drawing. So it wasn't a long-term gig anyway, because, you know, Sam was always intent on being his own writer for it. Yeah. And, and with image, especially in the beginning, they were kind of just, 
spread so thin. They were trying so many different things that I could, I kind of understand what you're saying there. We're like, yeah. Yeah, oh, I'm gonna make I'm down the road. I'll be the writer, but but who wants to do the first few issues with me? Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, it was pretty close to where I can't. You know, the closest I got to you know something big time at the moment. But um, you know, it's it's what it is. You know, Sam's a nice guy. You know, I have got no ill will against him or or Bill. That's a cool story though. That's neat. Um, and and, and also a kind of I totally understand, like if the first guy you ask still wants to do it, you kind of have to. That's been one thing, man, you know, learning, learning the process. I've been making comic books myself for about three years and it's really important to get a good rapport going with some people. Oh, definitely. Yeah. You know, so if you start, if you find people you can work with, you almost hate to try with other people sometimes because you're just like, well, but my, I can do it. Like, why do, why do I even want to, why do I even want to mess with someone else? Oh yeah, um, yeah. There's a, there's a few artists that you know I've used more than once, and you know I've did really well, and I kind of keep going back to them. So, yeah, I kind of in my head, like in my dream scenario, there's a couple guys. There's one guy working right now on DMA, and I think his art is just personally, I think his art is some of the best art in comic books. Like I'm in love with this guy's art. I really, really am, and I'm thrilled he's making my book. And so, like in the back of my head, I just want him to always be making my book. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Like, okay, well, he'll do that, and then I'll find other stuff for other people to do. Like, he's always just going to stay right there. Yeah, but, definitely. I know exactly what you're saying. <laughs> but it's not, it's not always that way. Um, let's, let's do this. What's a, what's a project you wish you had gotten to work on? And whether or not it was ever even really an option or not. But, like, was there ever something you were, you were cooking up where you thought, like, man, this would, this would go great, like, at DC or Marvel back in that kind of heyday, that moment back then? Well, it's kind of a weird, um, I was working with an artist from, uh, Wisconsin who actually, uh, actually we became really good friends, uh, but who actually passed, had a heart attack last year, uh, and, and passed away. Uh, but one of the projects we kind of took a pitch at and kind of knowing going into it that there wasn't going to be a whole lot of chance for it because what we did is we kind of created our own version of back girl. This was back. I couldn't even tell you when, but it was right after something happened to, Oh, I think it was right after the killing joke when, uh, Oh, okay. Yeah. That's that. So this is how old this is. So, you know, we knew Batgirl was no, was not going to be Barbara Gordon, you know? Uh, so there was, we, we, we seen our little window of opportunity and basically we came up with our whole new version of Batgirl. You know, he redesigned the costume, you know, I created a new backstory, everything for it. And we sent it to Denny O'Neill. And, uh, and I knew going in, this was a very, very, very long shot. And, you know, Denny, Denny was really cool about it, but he sent it back pretty much un, unread because of course, DC was preparing their own version of Batgirl at that time too. They weren't going to leave that character sitting around in limbo. So, you know, he was already preparing something to come out, you know, in the future. And, you know, he didn't want to take a chance of reading what we sent him. And then, you know, if something came up even close to it, you know, being afraid that, you know, we'd start screaming about it. But uh, right. he was really he was really cool about, you know, sending it back to us and, and everything. So that was probably the, the the one like that, you you know, you were describing as far as because most of the stuff I've been lucky enough the last especially the last few years, if I come up with an idea, I usually, you know, we'll find an artist for it and we'll put it out ourselves. And uh, what is unfortunately, something 
Marvel and DC, you know, I still kind of pick up now and then, but I just, I don't follow as much because I took such a break from them that a lot of their backstory is I just, I can't under, you know, whenever there's like a new artist or a new writer, especially comes on to something, I may start reading it uh, for a little while because when, when Tom King was on Batman, you know, I read his, his Batman, but uh, besides Tom King, I'm not that big a Batman fan. And I know a lot of people didn't like Tom King on Batman, uh, but I kind of enjoyed it. And that was, you know, so I, I don't say no to superheroes or Marvel or DC and I haven't got away from them, but it's just, I'm picky about what I read just because if you pick up a lot of it, like I tried to pick up uh X-Men when, um, Oh, who just took, who took it over and revamped it? Um, Jonathan Hickman. Yeah. I tried to pick it up then and you know, I'm just lost. I don't know who half the characters are or any, cause <laughs> I haven't read X-Men in probably two decades. So Oh yeah, yeah. It was uh, I, I, I liked when Hickman came on. I enjoyed it. It was such a it was such a big idea that I was like, yeah. oh, that's that's fascinating. But then I also feel like they kind of they were very they kind of dragged their feet. They sort of almost kind of enjoyed their creativity a little too much, right? Like because they kind of it felt like they weren't. It sort of all got a little slow, honestly. Yeah, and so as much as I loved the beginning they kind of lost me in the middle of the X-Men run stuff. And I've started to kind of take titles out that, that I, when they first came back, I, I, I picked up everything. Cause I was like, this is a cool idea. Yeah. And then they kind of just dragged their feet. I said, all right, well, let me, let me, let me get rid of some of this. But no, I, I know what you mean by that. Like some, it just gets so dense sometimes where you're just kind of left. I'm uh, confused. Like at this point, yeah. I know yeah. Batman and Catwoman aren't married, but I, I don't know why they didn't get married because I know that if I don't think it was Tom King, I think it was Tom Taylor who was taking him down that road or whatever his name is, but they never wound up actually getting married. And so I don't know what happened there. I don't know what the story is. I don't know what the situation was. Yeah. I, now, you know, mentioning Tom Taylor now, I have been reading his uh, Nightwing series. And I've been enjoying the, you know, that a whole lot. Uh, so, you know, if I find a really good Marvel or DC that I could pick up, I, and you know, when I was younger, I was the biggest continuity, you know, person in the world. You know, that was, you know, that's one of the things that made Marvel for me. Cause they were the, really the, one of the first companies to really be paying attention to that, you know, making sure that the stories fit in the continuity. But uh, nowadays I think it's just too much, attention paid to making sure that it fits everything fits exactly where it has to fit and sometimes i think that's to the detriment of the story no i totally i i totally agree with it i think you know uh probably one of the best relaunches that i really got into and really enjoyed was when they they took thor basically off the map for like two years he like disappeared or there was a ragnarok or something happened and thor was gone forever and when they brought him back, it was Michael Straczynski and uh, Olivia Copiel drawing. And it was this gorgeous Thor book where he was like reuniting Asgard and they were in Bronxton, Oklahoma or whatever it was. Oh, yeah, uh, I do remember a little about that. I didn't I didn't really read it at the time, but I remember seeing that and thinking that was kind of cool where Asgard was like on Earth now, basically, or something. Yeah, and, and what was most interesting was... 
when he first came back, ba- basically Marvel said, okay, Thor's back, but nobody can touch Thor for like these first six or eight months. Let them establish Thor back, and then we can, then you can kind of work Thor into your books and stuff. And so, yeah. like, it, it let him breathe a little bit before everyone had to be like, okay, Asgard's in Oklahoma now, and Thor's back. Now everyone reacts to it. And I think that that was a little bit better for them because I do yeah. agree. Sometimes, sometimes when they bring stuff back, they, they kind of, it feels very crowded and you're kind of like, Oh man. Okay. Yeah. But especially if you haven't kept up with everything, you know, like, you know, and, and back in my day, I used to buy every comic book in the world that came out. You know, I would buy every Marvel, every DC, every independent, but you know, that gets to be expensive. Nowadays, there's no way I could even come close to affording that. <laughs> oh yeah. You'd be you spending know? a small fortune. Oh, definitely. You know, back then I thought I was spending a lot of money, but, uh, so, you know, once you stop reading it for a while and then you go back and, you know, there's just so much backstory to it that some, some people do a good, good job of explaining it and you don't have to know everything that happened. And then some comics rely on that so much that it's like you get lost. Yeah, no, they really do. And there's sort of these moments where you're kind of going, Oh, what's going on? Like what happened? I know exactly. Probably one of my biggest books that I jumped onto, and had never really bought. I had never, I had never consistently bought Spider Man. Mm-hmm. And then when Steve Wacker was the editor who had been doing the Fifty Two, the New Fifty Two for DC, yeah, and they brought him to Marvel, and they basically made Spider Man three times a month or four times a month or whatever they did. Uh, and so I got excited about that, and I jumped on with that, and they did that. They did that for like two years or a year and a half or something. And aside from being a little expensive, it, it really was like a big jump in because Spider-Man is such a big deal, but also this was like a big moment. And so then Spider-Man was kind of everywhere in Marvel for a minute because they were kind of celebrating him and yeah. trying to make uh, you know, important again. But yeah, that was one of those runs that I, I remember getting all of it and kind of being really curious. And it almost, it wouldn't have mattered like how does Spider-Man fit in with the West Coast Avengers? Like I don't like I don't need to like just let me just tell tell me Spider-Man stories. Like yeah, but, definitely. But, yeah. but you there? But yeah, yeah, I'm here. But yeah, okay, it can definitely <laughs> it, it can definitely be a little complicated with fitting it all in and fitting it all together. And I think that's where maybe independent books kind of had that advantage where they can just tell whatever story they want. Um, now let me ask you this with, with the idea for Alma, bringing it all the way back to Alma here. Okay. I myself have had a couple times where I've come up with ideas and then the idea gnomes creep into my brain at night and they take it and then they give it to other people too. Does it ever worry you when you come up with an idea that you almost have to make it as fast as possible? Someone else doesn't steal it. Like right now there's a there's a book by Brian Michael Bendis out right now that's called The Ones. And yes. while it probably isn't directly anything like your book, if someone, if you tell someone your pitch, you know, you're almost worried that they're going to be like, well, what about, is that like Brian's book? That's saying that I just heard, uh, I was just listening to a podcast with Bendis on it. Um, I think it was Word Balloon, and he was describing that book. And when he described it, I kind of was like, Oh, <laughs> it's not like, like, like I said, it's not a direct copy of what I'm doing, but it's close enough 
that, you know, you can kind of see the, you know, the similarities between it. And I was kind of like, Oh, that's, you know, I said, if people start seeing my book, I, I can guarantee people are going to start asking me, well, did you, you get, you know, the idea from, from, you know, Bendis's book. And honestly, I can at least look back and say, no, that was like, I've had this idea for, it's been, it's been actually in print for over a year now. So before this even came out, but yeah, that, that happens. I don't worry about it as much as I used to. I used to be more worried about, oh, this idea is so cool. Somebody, I got to get it out before somebody steals it or whatever. Um, now it's like, you know, I, I still like getting stuff out as quick as possible just because I'm very impatient. It's like when I get something done, I want to get it out. That's one of the problems I have on Facebook or Twitter or all these sites is once I start getting pages in and artwork in, I start sharing it all over the place. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe I shouldn't share quite as much, but uh, I start just showing it everywhere because I get so excited about it. Yeah, no, and, and there's and there's plenty to be excited about when you when you have that home run idea and you feel like, oh, this is a big one. This is a good one. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I definitely like I always kind of the idea gnomes have gotten me a couple times. And so like sometimes now when I have a good idea, I'm like, well, if I wait too long, someone else is gonna do this. And so I always feel like that kind of motivates me a little bit to be like, I gotta get this out. I yeah. I when Marvel did their uh oh, what was it called? They basically invited pitches for their characters. The Marvel, yeah, uh, under Bill Jemis, like 2002, 2003, whatever it was called, Marvelous or Marvel Light or whatever. Uh, epic. That's what it was called. Epic. And uh, I, I put together a couple different pitches in Cinema and I never heard back. I just started really getting into trying to create comic books. I was just graduated high school, uh, but one of my ideas was a Excalibur pitch and like seven years later they they came out with an Excalibur book that was almost exactly my pitch. Okay. <laughs> oh, man. I like when I first heard it, like when I first read a description about what the book was gonna be, I was like, ah man, like <laughs> never will get to do this story now. Like that yeah. that's poop. But it yeah. happened. You can't put any you got to just give up and move on on it like at that point you say, all right well oh yeah <laughs> yeah i can't recall right off top of my head which ones but i know i've had that happen over the years where you know i've had such a great idea and then i read something about you know oh marvel's doing this or you know and then indy's doing this or whatever and it's like wait a minute that's my idea almost <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, you know it's you know you either at that point i think either you know change your product, you know, just get another idea or, you know, it's ideas are, you know, a lot, there's a lot of ideas out there and there, there are, there's always going to be some similarities. So I think it's more in the way you present that idea, you know, like, like with Bendis's book, his, his idea, you know, the ideas may be similar to Alma, but you know, he's on a completely different path than what, you know, I'm going through with Alma. So, uh, it even goes back to, I was reading recently, uh, I've got on whose blog, they were talking about, you know, the X-Men and doom patrol when they first came out, you know, everybody was saying, Oh, well, you know, they're just copies of each other, you know, cause they all came out, but they came out so quick, you know, I think a month of each other that they didn't really have time to, you know, I don't think either of them are really a copy of each other. It's just something was in the air at that time that, they created those characters with, you know, two wheelchair bound, you know, leaders and kind of the mutants and the misfits and all of that. Well, uh, if you, 
Ed Brudebaker was the guy who uh, did the Winter Soldier story at Marvel. Yes. And at the exact same time that he's doing the Winter Soldier, they're doing the Red Hood Jason Todd story at, with Batman. Uh, and so it brings Bucky and Jason Todd back at the um, – I mean, the reveals of that the Red Hood was Jason Todd and the Winter Soldier was Bucky. was Bucky, yeah. Yeah, I think it's within like two months of each other. Yeah, it's strange. I'm a you know besides comics, I, I'm a very big reader of anything. I, I like to read history and you know fiction. I, I read pretty much anything you put in front of me. And uh, one of the things I do is like I like books about uh, about presidents. I'm trying to collect a, a, a biography of every president. You know, um, and you know that also gets me into like other characters or other people that lived around that time. And it's weird sometimes like one of the presidents, John Quincy Adams couldn't find a book about for him. Couldn't find anything for him, you know, with him in it, you know, any biographies unless they were like really old. And then within about a year or two of each other, I think there's been four biographies of John Quincy Adams that just popped up. And it's like, why did all these people write? And, and I've seen that with other things. Sometimes it's just like, it's almost like there's something in the air to make people want to pick up that subject. I don't, I, I can't explain it. You know what it is? It's the, it's the Armageddon deep impact effect, right? Like okay. two, movies, two movies where a meteorite's going to destroy the world. Yeah. But I bet the pitches are wildly different. The stories are really wildly different and the movies are completely different. Um, but at, the, at their hearts, they're the same story, right? Because yeah. even a deep impact, don't they send astronauts onto the meteorite to try and blow it up? But, like, they're not really an important story. But in Armageddon, yeah. that's the whole story. Um, so, like, it is it – is, I, I always kind of think about, like, when every couple years there will be, like, a pair of movies that come out that are exactly the same. Channing Tatum, Gerard Butler, they both did the White House getting over within like six months of each other. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's always the the, the the same type of movie. And like I said, every couple of years. And I and I and you're right, like I, I think it's just this sort of uh one it, when they're doing the pitches, I bet one is totally different than the other, but at their core, to the average person, they're gonna come across as the same thing over and over again. Yeah. And, you know, if somebody went back and really looked in detail, maybe like when Armageddon and uh, the other one came out, maybe there had been like some articles about meteors in the news or something. And that just sparked their interest. You know, like the same thing with with the biographies of John Quincy Adams. There may have been like some new information that had came up or something that made all these people decide, hey, let's you know, that's that's a, a good process, a, you know, a good thing to, to look at. Uh, there's probably something if you. But, you know, finding the little core, the little connection to it all may be really hard. Yeah, or, you know, sometimes I like to think it's always something ridiculous, right? Like, they all were like, I want to write about a president, but which one isn't being written about? And they all yeah. Googled, and they were like, there's no Quincy Adam books? And they, yeah. like, then when they go to release, there's the publishers like, you know, two other guys brought me a Quincy Adam books just last month. And yeah. Like, <laughs> and that, and that's, that's that could be really, uh, you know, because somebody may be looking at – you know, like, you know, hey, let's do a meteorite movie. There hasn't been one done in, you know, forever or ne ever at all. <laughs> yeah. And someone else across town was pitching the same thing. <laughs> yeah, you got to, you got to, <laughs> you, 
you gotta think like they're passing each other in traffic, like trying to go. Yeah. Go <laughs> that would be great. The rom com about the two writers trying to make the asteroid movie. There you go. <laughs> That'd be worth watching. Well, John, I appreciate your time today, man. I really am excited about this Kickstarter. So what date is it is it coming out? January eighteenth. It should be a Wednesday. All right. So next Wednesday, everybody make sure to be at Kickstarter.com. Checking out Alma, the Guardian of Life. That's a good title. That's a good job title. Uh, one time I worked at a Target and I was a CSR, and it was about half a day before I realized I was a, I was a cashier. I, I didn't, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I felt really like oh I don't know man I feel special and they were like no you just stand here and ring stuff up and I was like oh. <laughs> all right well this isn't as cool as I thought it was mm. uh, but yeah so that's gonna be exciting I, I wish you the best of luck with it you seem like an awesome dude and you know what's cool. I think when people take time to tell stories about the stuff that happens behind the scenes in comic books, and it sounds like you've got a lot of fun stories. So I hope you take some time as you're going around trying to get on podcasts and stuff and get people to check out Alma. You tell some fun stories, because I think that that's going to be the thing that maybe makes you fun to listen to and, and people can check out. Thank you. Yeah, I've got – you know, I, I, I used to um, write for uh... – a newspaper called comics career newsletter, which has been out of print for like probably 20 years. And I kind of did a little column kind of like that based on just not so much how to write comics, but, you know, just based on some of the things that I've went through and some of the things I've learned and, and not learned. So I always kind of like that behind the scenes look at stuff. Yeah. I think it's fun stuff. I think it's always, and it's always interesting to do like the road not taken. So like, I always liked the, there was an article on one of the websites that was like urban myths, like, did so-and-so really do this? And yeah. then like, tell the stories behind it. And you're like, oh, that is kind of interesting. Definitely. Well, John, thank you very much for your time today, man. Best of luck with all. I'm excited. I hope it does well. I like the idea of the old grandma going around kicking butt and then grabbing <laughs> the walker and going back to the home. I- I'm in it. I'm excited for it. Uh, thank you for your time, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed the talk. All right, man. As usual, this is Nerd Thug Radio, and we will be right back.